join me in the book of Revelation, the final book of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 2, we're spending the first part of our summer in the first three chapters of this book, and we are hearing Jesus speak to his people, uh, talking to these seven particular Churches, but although they were real and particular churches, they are also representative of the universal church. And so these are, these are letters to us as well. And so would you join me in Revelation chapter 2? And I'm going to begin reading in verse 8 and read to verse 11. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now? Uh, that, that's a scary message. Those are frightening words to hear. Uh, Those are in some ways confusing and baffling words to hear. And so would you help us? We trust that these words are from you. That they are words of life. They are true words. They are powerful words. But so often we struggle to understand them. uh, And more often we struggle to receive them. And so would you give us understanding Clarity, would you give us humility to receive your message to us and to be changed by it? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are safe. You are safe. That is one of the most powerful sentences in any language. That is one of the most powerful things that we can hear That is one of the most powerful things that we can speak. You are safe. And I so wish that I could say that to you this morning. I so wish that I could say to you, if you are in Jesus, you're safe. If we as a church belong to Jesus, no harm will come to us. We are safe. I so wish I could say that to you this morning. But I can't. And I can't say that because Jesus doesn't say that. Or at the very least, his message to the church in Smyrna is a complicated one when it comes to the topic of safety. He says on the one hand, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Which seems to imply a measure of safety. But he says, on the other hand, your difficult and dangerous situation 
It's about to get worse. It's about to get more difficult. It is about to become more dangerous. It is as if he says, you are in danger and you are safe all at the same time. Which is confusing. Which creates tension. And especially when we realize this message of the church under threat and the church under protection is a message about us as well. So what do we do with this conflict? What do we do with this tension? Well, let's look at both sides this morning of this message that Jesus has for us. The church under threat and the church under protection. First of all, the church under threat. The city of Smyrna was known for its loyalty to another city. Smyrna was known for its devotion to the city of Rome. It was one of the first places in the world outside of Rome to be allowed to build a temple to Rome. In fact, there were multiple such temples in this city at the time of this book. Temples that celebrated the Roman Empire that were devoted to worshiping, worshiping Caesar, the Roman emperor, as a divine figure. This city was famous for that. And one of the worst things that you could be in this town was disloyal, treasonous, subversive, in any way questioning the status, the authority, the greatness of the Roman Empire. But that was exactly the accusation being leveled at the local church. They were accused of being treasonous. And it was being leveled not just by the political authorities, but by religious authorities. You see, the Roman Empire had reached somewhat of a compromise with the Jewish religion. And they said to people who are practicing the Jewish religion, you don't have to worship Caesar, you just have to honor him. And so there was this umbrella of protection over them. And for many of the earliest churches and Christians, they were placed, they were seen under that umbrella, under that protection of practicing the Jewish religion. But the leaders of the synagogue in Smyrna were saying, no, no, no. They were trying to take away the umbrella. They were saying, no, those people, they aren't Jews. They're not practicing the Jewish religion. Therefore, in refusing to worship Caesar, they are revolutionaries. They're subversives. They are traitors. That's why some of these Christians were about to be thrown in prison. But that accusation against them was a false one. It was a lie. And it was a false accusation on two counts. First of all, the Christian message is that Jesus fulfills the Jewish law and the Jewish hopes, not opposes them. So that in the New Testament, Jew and Gentile are said to be the true Israel of God in Christ. It was a false accusation on a second count because over and over again in the New Testament, Christians are commanded to honor, to respect and to submit to governing authorities. While they would have refused to worship Caesar as God, these Christians would have gladly honored him. Would have gladly submitted to the Roman law that ruled their city. 
They were called to be submissive, respectful of governing authorities. They were not revolutionaries. They were not subversives. But they were suffering. They were being persecuted because of lies about them. Slander. Things being said about them. Accusations being made about them that were not true. They were being thrown into prison, threatened with execution because of these accusations. And these lies originated not from political authorities, not even from religious authorities, but from a spiritual power. From Satan himself, whose M.O. in Scripture, his main identity in Scripture, is that of an accuser. The accuser of the people of God. The one who slanders God's people. Now, that's all pretty disturbing. But it gets worse. I feel a little bit like the, the narrator in Lemony Snicket's The Series of Unfortunate Events. Of, this is bad, but it gets worse. Maybe you need to stop listening. I think some of the most difficult words in this text aren't Satan, poverty, prison. It's those little words, about to. You are about to suffer. You are about to be thrown in prison. Some of you are about to die. And who is speaking those words? Jesus. Jesus is speaking those words. He says, I know your current pain. And I know your future pain. But I'm not going to step in and stop it. I am not going to step in intervene and prevent prison and death for you. And it gets even worse. Because who is Jesus according to verse 8? He is the first and the last. He is the one who rules over all time. The one who rules over all history. And so their suffering is not only anticipated by him, but it somehow fits in his plan. It somehow fits in his control, in his rule over what's happening. To which everything in us screams, Why? Why? Why is he doing this? Why is this a part of his rule over all of history? And I am with you in that question. And I have to say, as much as I don't want to say this, I don't know. I don't know why. There are some things in scriptures that address that question, but we are not given a full and complete answer to the why question. It's not wrong to ask it. The Bible asks it. Jesus asks it on the cross. It's not wrong to call out with the question, why? 
But we have to know that Jesus, for now, leaves us in our confusion and invites us to surrender to his rule. Invites us to surrender to his sovereignty over all of history. To do less than that is to treat him as less than God. But having acknowledged that difficulty, I want to say something that I really appreciate about Jesus. And this is consistent throughout the Bible. Notice that Jesus isn't a salesman trying to hide the negative, trying to obscure the risk. I remember when I was a junior in high school, the military recruiters came out of the woodwork and uh, you start, they start showing up at school and you start getting brochures in the mail. And I remember looking through all of that printed material with all the pretty pictures and all the exciting promises and wondering, where's the life-threatening danger part? Where's the you-might-get-shot-at part? That doesn't make it into the brochure. Jesus isn't like that. That does make it into the brochure. What is the brochure for Christian discipleship? It is the cross. It is the cross. It is the sign of being falsely accused and shamefully executed. That's the brochure for Christian discipleship. Jesus says, if you are going to follow me, you have to take that and walk in my footsteps. Jesus does not call us to a pain-free, failure-free, easy, comfortable existence. That's not the Christian message. That is not the gospel invitation. Now, that does not mean that all Christians everywhere at all times suffer to this extreme. For example, us. <laughs> this is not our situation in many ways. We are, we are in, in many ways very, very different in what we experience from the Christians who live in Smyrna. However, we do need to recognize that this is the experience of many Christians around the world still today. For example, the city of Smyrna, which we now know as the city of Izmir, where a Christian missionary sits in prison, who had been a pastor there for over 20 years, sits in prison, accused, falsely accused, of, t of being a terrorist. Now, we hear about him in the media because he's an American. What we don't hear about are the many Turkish Christians, the many Turkish pastors who have been imprisoned and worse in the city of Izmir, the city of Smyrna. This pattern continues. Today, it is a continuing 
part of the Christian experience. And at the very least, this should create an awareness in us. It should lead us to prayer for those around the world, our brothers and sisters around the world, who are in danger today of being thrown in prison for gathering to worship. But it should also lead us to a lack of shock. We should not be shocked when our life as a Christian isn't easy, isn't comfortable. We don't suffer to this extreme, but we should not be shocked that there is sometimes pressure put on our faith. That sometimes our beliefs and our practices are smugly dismissed as regressive, as ridiculous. We should not be shocked when, even as not a result of direct persecution, we still suffer from illness or financial struggles or job loss or other sadnesses. We should grieve, but we should not be shocked. Jesus said it would be this way. Jesus said that we would live under threat. We would live in danger. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and to follow Him, which is a life of risk, not a life of ease and comfort. And He calls us, just as He calls the Smyrna Christians, to faithfulness. Even in our quote-unquote small sufferings, our less extreme sufferings, we are still called to faithfulness. A faithfulness even to death. How is that possible? How is it possible to be faithful even to death? Well, it's possible because Jesus not only talks about threat, He also talks about the church under protection. He talks about safety. That's a part of his message to this church. His message to us as well. So notice once again verse 8. Jesus is not only the first and the last. He is also the one who died and came back to life. He not only rules over all of history, but he entered history. And he suffered. And he was faithful unto death. And then he rose. And he conquered that death. And he conquered the false accuser, Satan. Jesus is not only the playwright, but he is an actor in the drama. He is an actor who has been hurt by the drama. Which brings enormous weight then to verse 9. As he says to them and to us, I know. I know what you're suffering. I know what you're going through. You see, Jesus says that not with the knowledge of observation. Not with the knowledge even of planning. But it is the I know of experience. He says with full integrity, I know what you're going through because I've been through it too. There is a comfort to that, isn't it? Isn't there? 
Isn't there a comfort when you are suffering, when you are in pain, if you have someone who has been through that experience and can say to you, I know, I understand what you're going through. Jesus is that for us. And that is a comfort. But empathy, while good and while comforting, empathy isn't enough. Because empathy isn't safety. Empathy isn't protection. Empathy doesn't change anything. And so notice that the one who died and came back to life makes two promises about the sufferings of the church. He promises ten days. These are in verse ten. He promises ten days and he promises a crown. The ten days is a reference to Daniel 1. Daniel chapter 1 in the Old Testament. You remember Daniel and his friends? They found themselves in a very difficult and dangerous situation. They were trying to live faithful and obedient to God in the court of Babylon. Where even the food raised potential conflict, raised potential compromise. And when they refuse to eat what is was put in front of them, they are confronted. They are accused. They are thought of like, maybe you're subversive. Maybe you're not in with us. And in response, Daniel proposes a test. A ten-day test. He proposes a game of sorts. And he says, we're going to eat what we want according to God's command. And y'all eat what the king wants. And when we get to the end of the ten days, we'll see who looks better. We'll see who is more fit to carry out the work of the king. And of course, at the end of the ten days, Daniel and his friends, they win the game, right? They win the contest. They are vindicated. They are proven right in their faithfulness to God. Jesus is saying to his church, to us, you are living that story. You are living that story. The story of when it looks like you're losing, you're actually winning. When you look ridiculous to everyone around you, you are being approved by God. Vindicated by God. Proven right by God Himself. You are living that story. And then the promised crown of life, of course, carries political overtones in this context. It also carries athletic overtones. This is the crown of a victorious victorious Olympic athlete. But there's another Bible story in the mix as well. Because the word for crown is the Greek word Stephanos. Now, Bible trivia time. Who's the first Christian martyr after Jesus? Who is the first person to die for their faith? His story told in Acts chapter 11. It's Stephanos. It's Stephen. Who because of his teaching of the gospel is stoned. And as the stones are hitting him. The book of Acts says that he is in the spirit. And he looks and he sees heaven open. And he sees the Son of Man. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God's throne. He sees the glory of God, which, interestingly, by the way, it's how the book of Revelation begins. The vision of the Son of Man at the throne of God. 
He sees all that, and it is a vision of vindication. It's a vision of victory. It is a vision that reminds him that he belongs to God, and because he belongs to God, he has life. So Jesus says to his church, and he says to us, you are living that story. You are living that story of when it looks like you're dying. You're living. When you're being rejected by everyone around you, you are being accepted and celebrated by God Himself. See, being protected by Jesus, it is the safety of belonging to a story. It is the safety of belonging to a narrative. And this narrative has some unfortunate events, but it is not just a series of unfortunate events. This story, although we may not know what will happen on the next page, we do know where it leads. It ends in victory. It ends in life. It ends in us being approved, accepted, welcomed by God Himself. It ends in us being protected not from the first death, but being protected from the second death, the eternal judgment of God. It is a story in which God says to us, past, present, and future, you are mine now and always. And so he actually does say to us, you are safe. And faithfulness to death is possible only as we imagine ourselves, see ourselves, believe that Jesus has put us in that narrative. Faithfulness to death is possible when we trust the storyteller. It rests on this question. Where will you find security? You cannot live without looking for safety, without looking for security in someone, in something. So where will you find your security? The city of Smyrna, they found it in Rome. And they found it not only in the emperor in Rome, but they found it in a goddess of Rome. The goddess Sybil was who they worshipped in this city. And on the coins that were used as money in the city of Smyrna, Sybil was imprinted. An image of this goddess was imprinted. And she is seen wearing a crown. And it is a crown of the battlements, the walls that Smyrna had built around this city with the help of Rome. That's where their security was. But the church in Smyrna was different. The church in the Smyrna in Smyrna was distinct. 
They did not look to the crown of Sybil for their security. They looked to the one who is the first and the last, who would crown them with life. What about you? Where are you going to find safety? This week, when you feel the chaos impinge on your experience, where are you going to plant your feet? Where will you look for security? Who will be your mighty fortress? America? A bank account? Our financial system? A job? A spouse? Another relationship? Your own ingenuity? Your own problem-solving ability? The acceptance of the right group of people? Who will be your mighty Will it be the one who died and rose for you? Will it be the one who says to you, not, you'll never be harmed. You'll never suffer tragedy. But the one who died and rose to eternally say to you, you are safe because you are mine now and always. Let's pray.